I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Judges in chapter number 7. Judges chapter number 7. So thankful for God's goodness. Nathan, will you get me some water, bud, please? Kathleen's not here, so I'm, I'm, the, the well is dry. Kathleen always brings a bottle of water. So, um, Judges chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. Now, we've been studying on lessons from the Holy Land. And I've been bringing some practical points about places that we visit in our, in our trips over to Israel. We just got back. We took two this spring because one was canceled in 2020, the other in 2021. And uh, so we were there. So I felt like that God would have us. We've talked about Capernaum. We've talked about some different places in our travels where, where uh, we visit and the applications that we're able to make in each of those. And so today, thank you, Nathan. Today I want to talk with you about lessons from the Holy Land. And I want us to look at Gideon's spring. So we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, and so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them, by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. And so he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. And likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, were three hundred men, but all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thy hand, and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God to bless what we discussed this morning. Father, would you help us please? Open our hearts, our minds, Lord. We pray that you would instruct us, touch us, move us. Especially on this Father's Day, I pray that you would do a work in the hearts and lives of every dad that's here. We thank you for them and what these men mean to our church, and we're grateful. I pray now, God, that um, 
you would just draw us into one accord, bring our attention together, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Now, if you do a study of the book of Judges, you become aware of cycles. It just seems like the same thing happening over and over and over and over. In fact, in fact there are seven cycles in the life of the nation of Israel that are clearly illustrated in the book of Judges. The cycles are this, God blesses His children, the people of Israel. In blessing, they become self-satisfied and, and forget where the blessings come from, and ultimately they begin to disobey God, and in doing so, they rebel against God. So the first part is blessing. The second part is taking the blessings for granted, rebelling against the commands of God, and being disobedient. Then the third step is that God sends oppression to them, and they suffer under that oppression so that God might bring correction to them. The fourth step is they finally cry out to God for help. We're in trouble. We need we need deliverance. We don't like what's going on in our nation. Please, please bail us out of this. The fifth step is that God then sends a deliverer to them. And the deliverer is the human vehicle that God uses to set them free from their bondage that was brought about by their disobedience and rebellion. The last step is that they once again enjoy the blessings of God and then ultimately once again become self-satisfied <clears throat> and then once again the cycle begins all over again. Seven times you find that cycle repeated in the book of Judges. The deliverers that God sends to these people to get them out of the situations they've gotten themselves in uh, and out of the bondage of tyrants and, and their enemies, is, they're called judges. Okay? There, were, uh, there were 13 judges in the book of Judges. There were 12 men and one woman, Deborah. We know her story. We've discussed it on Mother's Days in the past. And so these, that's where the book of Judges comes from. A judge is not a guy sitting behind a desk with a robe on, with a gamble, gamble, slapping it down on the thing and saying, you're guilty. Okay, It's not what this is about. These are about warrior people that were sent to deliver God's people from the bondage and the mess that they had gotten themselves in. Now, in our text that we read in Judges chapter number 7, we begin dealing with the sixth judge whose name was Gideon. Okay? Gideon comes on the scene when the children of Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites. Now let me lay a little foundation, then we're going to get into some practical applications. So, but let's get the foundation laid for just a moment. So he's going to deal with a people called the Midianites. Who were the Midianites? They were the, the descendants of Abraham and Keturah. Who was Keturah? Keturah was the wife that Abraham married after Sarah died. Okay. Now, we don't know a lot about the Keturites, or, or, or what, what is known as in this place as the Midianites. They first appear on the scene in Genesis chapter 37. If you recall, 
it was the Midianites, it was the Midianites that um, Joseph's brothers, having thrown him into the pit, hoping to kill him, pulled him out of the pit, sold, the, sold him to a, band of, uh, to a band of Midianites who ultimately sold him into bondage into Egypt. Okay? So the Midianites were the enemies of God. They were, they were only concerned about their own well-being, and they have no problem with taking blood money. They take the son of Joseph, and they sell him into bondage for the cheap price of a slave. Who does that remind you of? Judas Iscariot, who sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver, which was the common price of a slave during that day. Now, when we come to Judges chapter 7, or actually Judges chapter 6, when you go home today, I don't have time to read both chapters. When you go home today, read Judges chapter 6, because what you'll find is you'll find the children of Israel under bondage to the Midianites and being bullied by them. Because they weren't being slapped around and their lunch money being stolen. They were so oppressed by the Midianites that when, the, when they would plant their crops, and the crops would begin to flourish and grow during the time of harvest. Every time, sure enough, here comes the Midianites rolling into camp, and the children of Israel were so afraid that they ran to the mountains and hid in the caves and the dens of the mountains. And after all of their hard work and labor, the Midianites would steal their crops, eat their corn, kill their, their uh, flocks, and the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 6, And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. That's chapter 1, verse 6. Now look at me. Do you know when that happened? Do you know when they cried unto God? Seven years after the oppression began. It reminds me of that song where when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and frogs were sent in the land as a judgment of God, one of the plagues. There were frogs everywhere. They were in the, the Bible says, in the kneading dough. I'm going to just jump off for just a moment and ask a question that has a, not a lot to do with the message. But how many of you have ever eaten frog legs? Okay, so don't, I mean, come on, they're good. Anyhow. Tastes like chicken. So anyhow, it's a southern thing. But anyhow, so I mean, I mean, so there were frogs everywhere. And so Moses came to Pharaoh, and he said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, okay, I've had enough to ask God to take the plague away. And Moses said to Pharaoh, when do you want him to take the plague of frogs away? And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. He must have enjoyed frog legs. I, I don't know what the deal was. Really? You, you, you want him to take the plague away tomorrow and so a guy wrote a song called one more night with the stinking frogs okay it's a doctrinally sound choirs ought to use that as a choir special so seven years of having their crops stolen their flocks butchered their land taking their homes ransacked seven long years and the bible says finally and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Something else that's of note that we find in the early chapters, chapter number 1, 
before we get to chapter 7, is this. And this is important. The, the, the Midianites did not come alone. They brought with them the Amalekites. Now, if you know the story of the Amalekites, they were the people that hid while Moses and the children of Israel were traveling, and they waited until the strong forefront, the, the vanguard of the army passed through, and the women and the children and the weak and the sick and the maimed ones were at the end, and then they ambushed the weak part. In other words, they were cowards. Instead of facing Israel head on, they ambushed the weak and the women and the children, and God said, I will remember that. And so he said to King Saul, go in, and I want you to wipe out the Amalekite existence from the earth. He was trying to erase from his world that he planted, this is God's, this is my father's world. God said, I don't want that culture existing. Well, Saul didn't do that. He spared the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen, and he spared King Agag. And because of that, the children of Israel suffered from the Amalekites and, and struggled with them. And let me remind you of this, the, the sins... The sins that we tolerate and allow to live in our lives will come back and haunt us. It's an amazing thing that Saul spared the Amalekites, and guess who killed Saul? An Amalekite. Isn't that amazing? Saul let the Amalekites live, and it was an Amalekite that killed Saul. And now here we got, you know, you know, we we we've got problems that just are throughout the 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 uh, the history of the children of Israel as they deal with these people. Let me say this. And then I got to move. But listen, the enemies, your enemy, your spiritual, the enemies of your soul, the sins of your life don't disappear. Goliath came out 40 days and 40 nights. And I guess every morning they woke up, they thought, man, I hope he doesn't come up tomorrow. Guess what happened tomorrow? He was there. Giants don't disappear. They have to be defeated. And so it took David wading down into a valley with a sling and five smooth stones to kill the giant. And the only way you'll ever get victory over the sins and the problems and the tyrants that have invaded your life is, is to have faith in God because God brings victory where you and I don't have the strength to do so. So Israel's in trouble at this point. Let me just put it that way. When we bump into chapter 7, verse 1, guess what? Israel is in trouble. And so, again, in chapter 6... If somebody's going to deliver them, it better be somebody bad to the bone, okay? I mean, we're looking for, we're looking for a Wild Bill Hickok, all right? We're looking for a Bat Masterson. Hopefully, this is somebody like Wyatt Earp. When Wyatt Earp lived and had moved to Colorado from Dodge City, some ruffians came into Dodge City with the intent of killing his brother James and another deputy sheriff. So they're shooting the town up. And they find James and his buddy. They're trying to kill him. And James and his buddy go in and lock themselves in a, in a, in a room there in Dodge City. And they're shooting the building up. But they're going to kill him. They've got it surrounded. They're shooting it up. So a guy runs into the telegraph office, sends a telegraph to Wyatt Earp, who's in Colorado, and says they're trying to kill James and whatever the friend's name was. They're trying to kill him. Wyatt says to the guy, sends a telegraph back, and says this, tell them, if they don't leave them alone and let them go, I will find them and I will kill them. The guy takes the telegraph, walks out into the street in Dodge City and says, Hey guys, I've got a message from Wyatt Earp. Reads the telegraph, the guys get on their horse and ride away. 
I mean, I mean that's bad. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's, a, it's a good bad. Okay, so if you have a picture dictionary and you put the word bad up and it's a good bad, you ought to put Wyatt Earp's picture right there because when he just simply said, I'm coming, they said, we're leaving. All right, that's not Gideon. When you find Gideon, he's not John waning it, okay? He's not walking around with a swagger, you know, pulling his thing back like Clint Eastwood. He doesn't have a gun on his hip. I mean, honestly, he's threshing wheat trying to hide from the enemy because he knows if he does it out in the open, he's, it's, it's going to all get in trouble. Okay? So he has some conversation with God. And, and, and I, boy, I wish I had time to develop that. But he has some conversations with God. By the way, God sent him home to deal with his family first. His father's altar, he tore it down. Gideon set a fleece out twice, didn't he? It's okay, do on and then do off. And somebody says, well, he didn't have any faith. No, no, no. He didn't have any faith in himself. G. Campbell Morgan said, don't, don't criticize Gideon for doing that. It means that, that, that two times over he didn't trust Gideon. He wanted to make sure that God was in on it. And when, God, when he knew God was in on it, he took a handful of people to face God. Now, listen to me. You can say anything you want to about Gideon, but you can't say he wasn't a man of faith. And so here, here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Um, uh, Gideon blows the trumpet. All right, so can you see him on a hill? I was just on that hill just a couple of months ago. Can you see him on the hill? He blows a trumpet. It's time for battle. Guess who shows up? 32,000. Son. That's pretty good. I mean, 32,000? That, that, I mean, that makes you feel good. I called for help. And 32,000 people came to help me. Man alive. That's, that's pretty good leadership. Until you look across and realize that on the opposing side, there is one of the most incredible armies that have ever gathered between Midianites and the Amalekites. There's 135,000. Well, suddenly the 32,000 really doesn't look super good, okay? I mean, I, was, I felt I was feeling good. And then they had to send me the head count from their, their army. <coughs> and mine pales in comparison with them. And then, <coughs> excuse me, on top of that, on top of that, God says something to Gideon. Okay, now put yourself in Gideon's place. 32,000 against 135,000. And God says to Gideon, Gideon, um, you've got too many. How do you think Gideon felt? See, here's our problem. We've got black ink on white paper, and we think there's no color in there. Oh, there's color. What do you think Gideon was feeling about then? Oh, that's my bad ear, Lord. Could you, what, what, what did you say? I, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but I, I've got, I, I, look, militarily, he had to have thought, God... 32,000 against 135,000, that's not good to start with, and you're whittling me down. And that's exactly what God did. Now that brings us to our first point, lessons from Gideon's spring. The first point is, is, that, is that fear is contagious. Fear is contagious. So here's what God says to him. God said, tell everybody that's afraid that they can go home, okay? 
And so Gideon gets all his 32,000 together and he says, I mean, he's feeling good. Then he's feeling bad. Now he's fixing to feel frustrated because he says to his 32,000 men there, he said, all right, now here's what God has said. And he's, you know, I'm, probably he's got fingers crossed behind his back, you know. Uh, here's what God said, guys. God said, if you're afraid, you can go home. And with bated breath, he waits. And I can't help but think there's a pregnant pause there. You know what I'm talking about that they call in, in, in journalism? There's, that, there's that, that pause where nothing is happening and there's a vacuum that's sucking everything into it and nobody's making a move. And then one guy slumps his shoulders, lowers his head, turns his back, and starts heading home. Listen carefully. 21,999 people follow him. Why? Because when he exhibited fear, everybody caught the sniffles. When, 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 when he became afraid... His fear was contagious and it spread and everybody around him suddenly began to think about what he was feeling and, and, and they, they, they felt fear. Remember this, 12, tri, 12 spies went into the land of Canaan, but only, only two stood and said, we can do this. Of all the Jews in Babylon, only three stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and came through the fiery furnace. I mean, think of, think of the rest of While the entire army stayed in their foxholes. And if you read the scripture, the Bible says they came out every day and put the, the battle in array. What does that mean? They weren't fighting, they were yelling. <laughs> but nobody would go into the valley and fight Goliath. I ain't, I ain't fighting him. No, no. King Saul, the Bible says, was head and shoulders. King Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. Head and shoulders. Guess where King Saul was at when, jo when Goliath was thumping his chest and pointing his fingers and defying the armies of the living God? Saul was in his tent. And they bring David up to him and Saul says, you want to use my weapons? What a coward. See, the height of who you are as a man doesn't mean that's the height of your heart. And so here he is. Here he is. Saul's head and shoulders above everybody, but it was a shepherd boy that took the journey down into the valley and, 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 and won the battle. 22,000 men would rather live in bondage than live as free men. And guys, I want to just tell you, in this day and age, as a dad, in this day and age, we have to make up our mind and decide whether we're going to live by faith or by fear. Faith will help you get beyond your fears or fear will strangle your faith. God in heaven, give us a revival of manhood in this nation where men are willing to lead their families again uh, uh, forward for the Lord and are not afraid to stand up and say no, no, no to all of the ridiculous fads and crazes that are sweeping our country and are willing to stand up. Listen to me, we're not talking about somebody behind a pulpit. We're talking about somebody in the home and be a man of God in your home and lead your families forward for God. We've got to have a revival of that in our nation.
Just because the culture has changed doesn't mean that truth has changed. Just because the world has become woke, the one thing they're not woke up to is the truth of the Word of God. And we have to stand firmly and say, this is where we are. Um, Listen, when my dad was lost and on his way to hell, he was a better Christian than a lot of guys I know that that, that claim the name of Christ. You know why? Because there was never a point in my life ever where my dad swallowed hard when it came to telling me what he thought and laying down his rules for me. He looked me dead in the eye. He has said to me, how do you spell your last name? H-E-R-R-I-N-G. As long as you spell your name that way, you're not going to do that. And he would say, absolutely not. Can't do that. He didn't allow me to get swept along. And by the way, when my friends were going to jail, when my friends were drunk on a street corner somewhere on a Friday night, when my kids were smoking reefers with the teachers at school back in Savannah, Georgia, let me tell you something, I never involved myself in any of that. You know why? Because I had, when I, I had a man in my family who got saved when I was 16 that was not afraid to step to the plate and be the man. And you young people in this room, right now, I want you to listen to me. You, you young people in this room that have a father that is like that, you better thank God in heaven for your dad and be grateful that, that he's got a backbone and not a noodle where his backbone should be located. I'm serious. You better thank God for it. Because we're living in a day and age where there's no authority in the world anymore. You better thank God for your daddy. And you ought to tell him so. Before this day is over, you ought to thank God and you ought to tell him you're grateful for who he is. Point number two, and that is that indifference makes us vulnerable. Okay. So, so he's got how many people? 32,000. How many people leave? How many? This is weak. Good night. 22,000. Okay, now I know you're not good on math. Neither am I. But I took a calculator to figure it out. No, really. Okay, so he's got 32,000 people. 22,000 leave. How many does he have left? How many? Luke, are you trying to throw me off? Luke said 9,000. He's messing, he's messing with my math, man. Don't do that. He's seen my report cards. Anyhow, but anyhow, so, okay, so he's got 10,000 left. So think about this now, all right? Here we go. 32,000 gets 135,000. Not good. God says, I'm not through. 10,000 against 135,000. Gideon has to be feeling extraordinarily weak right now. But God then says to him, um, <laughs> I got some more whittling I want to do. Now, he sends him down to the spring, and the spring today is called Harod Spring, okay? Or my, my God says Harod. All right, he says, Brother, I said Harod Springs. He says, That's not Harod Spring, it's Harod. So, Harod Spring, all right? So, here we go. So, so, so he sends him down to Harod Spring, and, and he says, I want you to tell him to drink water, all right? So they get down on their knees, okay? They get down on their knees, some of them do, and they're just lapping it up like dogs. Now remember this, and we were there, the enemy's not far from them. And in fact, the enemy can get pretty close to them before they ever see where the enemy's at. So you better be on the lookout. So, so they get down, and they're, they're, they're drinking this water, totally oblivious to anything going on around them, but 300 men dip their hand and drink like this watching all the while. And God said, those guys, those are the guys 
that are aware of the danger, those are the guys that I want fighting for me. And so 9,700 got on all fours like dogs, oblivious. They were so, they were so focused on quenching their thirst, they, they forgot the enemy and drank. And God said, go home. Go home. I don't want the fearful, and I don't want the foolish going to battle for me. And he sent them home. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. God help us to be like the 300 that are aware of the danger in our world today. And as we drink, as we enjoy the blessings that God has given us, we never forget the enemy that's just over the crest. Let us not sleep, Paul wrote Timothy, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men and be strong. Last of all, and that's this point, and that is that faithfulness wins the battle. Now, if there's a lesson we might pick up from this, here's the lesson. Are you ready? God doesn't need an army. See, we equate, here's our problem, we equate, we equate numbers with strength, when in reality we should equate God with strength. It's not, it's not the numbers, it's not the numbers, it's the power behind it all, it's God. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by, my, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Years ago, and you, you, you know, you, those of you that know me, you know I love motorcycles, I love riding bikes, and I love my Indian, okay? It's got its own little section of my garage that no one else is allowed to go. I see one of the kids picking up a board, and I'm saying, really, you're carrying that board past my motor? No, go out the back door, go out, climb the fence, go around the neighborhood and bring the board around. Do not take the board near my Indian. Years ago, um, in the 40s and 50s, when guys got back from the war, they, they, um, they started to become a big craze in the motorcycle world. Okay? And, and what happened was, um, there, was a, there was a bit of a crime element that was, that was pretty popular. And the Hells Angels and other groups became very prominent. There's a lot of others today that, that go on. And so... Because of, the, because of the public persona of motorcycle riders, the AMA, the American Motorcycle Association, wrote an article and they claimed this. The claim of the article was, uh, not everybody that rides a motorcycle is a hoodlum or a criminal. And they said this, in fact, 99% of everyone riding motorcycles 99% of them are good, law-abiding, honest citizens, doctors and lawyers and businessmen and blue-collar guys. That's what makes up the motorcycle world. Only 1% are the criminal element. And so the gangs decided, the Hells Angels, the outlaws, the banditos. In fact, I was in Oregon when we were on vacation a few weeks ago in Lincoln City, and in, in a parking lot, 
there was a there was a motorcycle there, a Harley chopper there. And the guy came out and he got on the back of his bike, straddled his bike, put some stuff in the bags there, and he had he had what they call a cut, he had his vest on, and in the vest he had he had a, a, a lot of patches and he had the rocker there, and the rocker was the Banditos, Texas branch. And beside that he had a diamond. And in the middle of the diamond there was a one and the percent mark. Okay? Somebody sent me a patch the other day from some friends of mine in South Dakota and it has B-O-B-B, Bob. And it says the Brotherhood of Baptist Bikers. A bunch of guys just ride together across the country. They're trying to get this thing launched. They've made me the honorary president, okay? I don't know what kind of money I get paid for this, but I suspect it won't be a tank of gas. No, it's just a bunch of guys that love each other having fun. Look at me, listen to me. No joke. I try to tell God, this is no joke. You put a 1% patch on you, you wear the 1% diamond, and you got trouble. You ride with the 1% patch, and there's going to be a fight. I've, I've, I've talked with guys on the forum that, that wore the rocker, didn't even know what they were wearing, and they get in deep ruckus somewhere. You ride your motorcycle, but don't claim to be a one percenter. You know why? You know what the 1% means? It means we will die for our club. We will die for our colors. We will die for our territory. Don't come on our turf wearing your colors. We'll take your colors from you. There have been some innocent guys. <laughs> there have been some innocent guys that have really got themselves in, in a lot of trouble because they were ignorant of what the 1% meant. Now, if you do your math right, I've used this illustration before, but if you do your math right, you'll figure out that with Gideon, it came down to 1%. And we're in a place today that that'd be a pretty good percentage for men. 1%. The typical American congregation draws an adult crowd that is 61% female. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more women in church than men. And thank God for the women. But what's wrong with the men? Every Sunday, 25% of married, church-going women worship without their husbands. And midweek services are made up of 70 to 80% female because men aren't getting plugged into church. And some of that, some of that is because of the effeminization of church. You can leave Matt or say whatever you want to, but, but the problem is we're making church warm and fuzzy. And the reality of the matter is men want truth. Okay, put something in my plate that I can eat, something that ap appeals to me. And we've got to get back to, to the, listen, I, I challenge you to study the New Testament church. I'm talking about the modern church. I challenge you to study the New Testament church, which was, Paul said, the pillar and ground of the truth. Very important that we get back to that. 90% of the boys that are being raised in church today will abandon church entirely by their 20th birthday. 
I thank God for these guys that were with us at camp, and, and, and I, have, I have confidence in them that they're going to stay faithful and serve the Lord. We've got to have a revival of men that, that, that will step up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Men that aren't afraid of taking a stand. Men that aren't so foolish uh, to use their maleness as a substitute for godly manhood. Men that will live holy, holy, holy lives. That won't get sucked into the computer. Uh, that, that won't become uh, a part of this porn-driven world. Men that, that, that won't expose themselves to the uh, attack of the enemy. Men who are faithful in their God and I time on a daily basis. Men that will faithfully serve and invest themselves in their church. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Let me tell you what God's looking for today. On Father's Day, He's looking for one percenters. He's looking for men that say, I'm all in. He's looking for men that say, I'm serious about my relationship with Christ. He's looking for men that say, I'm invested in my church. He's looking for men that say, I'm standing and I will not move. I don't care what the culture does. I don't care what the pressures are. I will be what God wants me to be as a man. I'm not going to leave it to my wife. I'm not going to make my kids find their way on their own. I will lead my family. As for me and my house, I'm going to make a decision. We're going to serve God. God, give us men that'll join the 1%. Not the 22,000 that walked away or the 9,700 that lapped like a dog, but the men who will stand for God. Let's bow our heads, could we? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Bonnie's going to play something on the piano right where you're at. Why don't you just make a commitment to the Lord? Just say, Lord, I'm in. I, I, I'm in. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a man of God as a husband. I want to be a man of God as a father. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a man of God in my personal, private, God and I time devotions. I want to be a man of God when it comes to leading my family in the right decisions. I want to be a man of God when I talk to my children about the things that are happening in the world around them. I want to be a man of God. I want to stand strong and stand firm and be the man that God wants me to be. God will bless you. And He'll give you victories that you couldn't possibly imagine if you'll just stay faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and for what you do in our lives. Thank you for these men. Bless them, I pray. Help us, dear God, I pray, to never be afraid to take the stand, Lord, that's consistent with your word. And we'll be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.